We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. Special welcome to listeners joining us on our new affiliate, Patriot Talk Radio 920 in Houston, Texas. American Warrior Radio is coming to you from the Silencer Central studios. Begin your visit with silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs, complete the paperwork, and then ship right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. Evil walks among us. Now, that statement should not surprise anyone who's an American Warrior Radio listener. One only has to look at the 9-11 attacks or the events of October 7th in Israel to confirm this. Today, we're not going to be talking about the evil of international terrorism, but rather that kind that lives next door, attends our churches, and drives our highways. Our guest today had a distinguished 22-year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigations and was the first female member of the Behavioral Science Unit. During her career, she consulted on more than 850 homicide cases, including some of the worst serial killers. She currently serves as CEO of J.D. Monroe Enterprises. Her law enforcement career rises through the FBI and her time with the BSU is chronicled in her book, Hearts of Darkness, Serial Killers, the Behavioral Science Unit, and My Life as a Woman, and the FBI. Southern Arizona listeners and Phoenix listeners, you've got an opportunity to meet Jana. She's going to be one of the authors featured at the 2024 Tucson Festival of Books, which takes place March 9th and 10th on the University of Arizona campus. Welcome to American Warrior Radio with Jana Monroe. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Jana, you were laser-focused from the age of 13 on, on a career in law enforcement inspired by the likes of Clint Eastwood. Yes, and it seems kind of odd, Clint Eastwood, but... Yeah, to give that a, a little bit of background, my, my dad was a projectionist, and that's back in the days of double features. So I got to see two movies when he was babysitting me, and that was during the time there were a lot of uh, Clint Eastwood, the, the Westerns, and then Dirty Harry came out, and I was very inspired by his law enforcement career. In 22 years, Jenna, while you were at a badge and a gun, were you ever tempted to say, go ahead and make my day? I was. I really was in, but I, I refrained. Okay. I did hear an interview where they were talking about why, you know, because you talk about how young people, you know, when you're 12, you want to be an astronaut. When you're 13, you want to be a doctor. When you're 14, you want to be a race car driver. But you were, like I said, laser focused. And I've heard that part of the reason for that was you love our country and you hate bullies. That's exactly right. Yeah, I love that we are a nation of liberties and, and laws, and I wanted to help protect that equilibrium. And I can't stand when people pick on other people, and, and especially the vulnerable. So it seemed like a perfect thing to serve that calling. And walking through your book, we, we sort of followed the arc of your career. You, As I recall, you started off as a probation officer, which, frankly, there's not enough money in the world to pay me to do that job, and then spent some time as a police officer there in, in Chino, California. It's important for people to remember the context here. We're talking about, what, 1972, 73? It's 76. There was a big time of change in the country, but we still hadn't quite gotten to uh, where we are now as far as women in law enforcement. So as I understand it, some of your most early assignments there were literally babysitting. Yeah, that, that was my term for it. They really didn't know uh, what to do with me, and sometimes we'd make arrests and search warrants before Child Protective Services could get there. They would uh, give the children to me, and a couple of times 
I ended up, which is not really good to say, but I, I ended up taking them home. And the reason I did is because no one came for them. And I, I really did. It was, it was ugly work. I felt very sorry for the, for the children. But yeah, I did a lot of babysitting work initially, literally. In retrospect, Jana, once you got into the behavioral, the BSU unit, because you dealt a lot with, with juvenile crime and, and, and gangs and, and young people just having a rough time when you're a probation officer and there in Chino. In retrospect, do you think that gave you sort of an initial peek into how the lack of nurturing turns people into killers? I don't think that occurred to me at that time, but I saw, I'm going to call it a lot of ugliness, maybe not, didn't get to the evil part, uh, which I construe as evil yet, but yeah, just children without any parenting or horrible parenting, abuse, those sorts of things. And the kids didn't really seem to have much of a chance. Those who didn't make it, it was more the exception. We've had a number of uh, female fighter pilots on American Warrior Radio, many of whom, literally one who went in, went started the Air Force Academy when it was still illegal for women to fly fighters, and by the time her graduation date came around, that, that was now legal. Your transition, despite what we might have seen from Angie Dickinson on TV, was still a pretty rough one. I mean, there's still... That glass ceiling was was pretty thick, and Jenna had to kick a lot to get through there. Yeah, absolutely, a, a lot of kicking. But I tried to do the kicking very professionally, and and with my heels on, so it, it was easier to break things. Actually, folks, when folks read the book, they'll, they'll also hear another very funny heel story. But one of the interesting, compelling things to me about your life story, Jenna, is you're working up through the ranks. I mean, you're married. It's pretty clear that you're in law enforcement. If you're in law enforcement, you want to be, you know, you want to work with the elite and so you and your husband finally had a conversation where he offered you a choice. Either it was him or the FBI, and I guess we know how that turned out. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it, uh, we that was that was my first husband. I got it right the second time around. Mm-hmm. But that was not certainly not his goal. And unfortunately, for some reason, he thought this was something that I would outgrow, uh, which is an odd way to, I think, speak to an adult female. But that was something he kind of thought I would outgrow after the police department, and I'd always told him that my goal was the FBI. Yeah, well, I, I, I've got friends who would call that your your practice husband, Jenna. So I'm glad uh, I'm <laughs> glad it all worked out. Now, there I didn't know that there was apparently a, a class action lawsuit in, in 1973 to allow women to serve as FBI agents. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was not a part of that class action suit, but uh, J. Edgar Hoover passed away in 1972. And women were not allowed to be agents. They could be secretaries or what they called roller clerks, were file clerks, but not agents. So a class action suit was filed in 1973. The suit was won, and that's when women were first allowed in. And interesting factoid, if you will, the first female agent was a nun, a prior nun. Boy, that'll, that'll win me some bar bets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's not widely known. Now, she's someone, I don't happen to know her, but she's someone who should write a book. So the suit was filed in 73. When was it resolved? Was it relatively quickly that, that same year? Or? Yeah, it was that same year. So okay. it's when, as you well know, with, with lawsuits, that's pretty quick. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, I think part of it was too, there, some of the other federal agencies had already allowed one in. So, well, just in my opinion, there was really no good reason not, not to allow them in the FBI. There were eight women in your academy class, Chana. Did all eight graduate? No, one did not. Okay. That's still pretty good. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think the FBI does an excellent job at is is the pre-screening, all the testing you do ahead of time. In some of the other federal agencies, the uh, theory is more that they have you get in and then they uh, will kind of 
eliminate you in the academy if you don't do well in the academy. The FBI doesn't want to waste money, so they do a lot of the, you know, the testing ahead of time. Make pretty sure that you can pass everything. Now, as I understand it, even though you got through the academy, did very well, you were still treated in many cases sort of like Chino, California again, where it was babysitting jobs. In fact, as I recall, there's one time one one of your coworkers, a fellow agent, literally invited you to step outside of the parking lot and resolve things, and I guess uh, he decided not to test you on that. Right. That's where, and I'm I'm, I'm glad he didn't uh, challenge me on some, some some things that I said I would could do because I really not sure I could have, but he believed me, so it was good. But yeah, it was there was no welcome wagon, but. I also look at the cultural and, and that time frame, right? When, when you're looking at that era, things were just were just different. A few people uh, were, were not hospitable, but nobody was like really mean. Um, it's just that, in my perspective, women were just looked at as uh, second class citizens and until proven otherwise. And it, I understand. I learned something from your book, but apparently, and I, I don't know if I'll get this right. The, the knock and announce, or the whatever you call it, but. Being selected as a person to actually pound on the door and say, you know, this is the FBI, open up, that's that's quite the honor. Right, it is. It's the person, and, and the expression was, he's going to the door, and it used to be a comment, say, I'd go through the door with you. Hmm. And that, that's just what that meant, the one that's either the case agent or the one leading that particular case. Outstanding. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, Janet. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. We're talking with Janet Monroe, a, a true trailblazer and the FBI, and uh, turned out to be one of their one of their best agents, moved on to the leadership positions. We'll be back with more with Jana Monroe in just a few seconds. Stick around. Back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're very privileged to be talking with Jana Monroe. Jana has an, an extensive, outstanding career in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Jana, something else I learned. So you you get out of the academy, okay, you get to, I don't know if they have like an envelope or something to tell you where you're going, but I've heard you say that the, the Bureau kind of teases you a little bit. They ask you where you want to go, and then they don't send you there. Yes, I think that's the best way to describe it. They give you like your top three choices, to tell them what your top three choices are, and then they, t- I think, take glee in, in not sending you there. When you come out of the academy, do you immediately, do you get kind of a specialty, or they send you where they need warm bodies, and then it kind of goes from there? Yeah, the, it's phrases, the needs of the Bureau. So they send you for the needs of the Bureau. So my first office was Albuquerque, and it is kind of like an Academy Awards or the Emmys. You stand up in front of the whole class, and there's a sealed envelope, and you open the envelope, and then you announce where you're going. And I'm um, humbled to say that I had really didn't know how Albuquerque was spelled. So um, fortunately, I didn't say it out loud, How I, but I'm looking at it. And there was probably a four or five second hesitation on my part before I realized where I was going. And off mic, you turned to someone and said, where in the heck is Albuquerque? <laughs> I mean, you knew it was in New Mexico, right? Yeah, but I didn't know where in New Mexico. Okay. Yeah, And it's like, why did they spell it that way? Yeah. One of the interesting things, as if as it wasn't hard enough for a woman in the FBI, my folks are missionaries, so we spend a lot of time amongst the, the Native American populations, and um, that can create an extra special challenge for someone like you. Why don't you tell our listeners how that went? 
Yeah, it, it actually did. And, you know, some of the, the reservation living was, was, was very sad because there is a, a lot of alcohol use and abuse and some of the associated crimes with that. But when I was there, they basically, the tribunal police would not recognize me, would not recognize a woman as being in charge. So typical things that, typically, you know, an interview or something you could have handled by yourself, I would need to bring a male counterpart just so that he could be recognized as in charge. And then I would, you know, conduct the interview and take notes. But they just didn't recognize me as being in charge of anything. Now, educate me here, Jana. Is that because because it's it's a reservation land, because it's technically a sovereign nation, is that why the FBI had jurisdiction in many of these cases where you normally wouldn't uh, off the reservation? Exactly. That's why we had the federal jurisdiction on that. And uh, Gallup is what I'm talking about, Gallup in Mexico. Don't, don't know if he's been there or not, but oh, yeah. especially at the time I was there, it was actually considered a bureau hardship office, and there aren't many amenities there. You either got extra pay or a choice of where you... Janet, I want to move on into the, the BSU. That's a pretty elite unit, and uh, I, that's, I don't know what, in, in civilian terms, people that watch a lot of TV, they wouldn't necessarily think behavioral science, you know, what would be another phrase so folks know what we're talking about here? Well, behavioral analysis unit or uh, the TV show that a lot of people are familiar with, Criminal Minds, Mind Hunter, those are all about the unit. And and it accurately depicts the unit, but of course, some of the, the characters and, and the, the crimes in it, if you will, are fairly fictitious. And this is a rather elite unit. How many nationwide, how many people were involved in, in BSU at the time that you, you joined the group? Twelve. Twelve across the entire... Yeah. Wow. Okay, and I've, I've heard you describe this as mostly you're not necessarily out there in the field. It's, you're more, you try more of a sort of a think tank operation. Can you sort of maybe walk us through how that would work when, when a, case would, a case file would land on your desk or one of your counterparts' desks? Sure. And, and we were divided up into regions. That's how we got our cases. So I had actually, the, the I had Florida and, and, and that area at the time. But uh, since many of the crimes, they were not of federal jurisdiction, we had to be invited into the case by the locals, by either the city or state police. And one of the criteria was that they had exhausted all of their leads. So it was like what we call a cold case. And then they would uh, bring in, and I say they because they would come to us at Quantico, Virginia, and they would bring all the different evidence that we were looking for, the different forensics. Our job, and I say it was like a think tank because there'd be as little as two of us, as few as two of us, or as many as five or six, depending on the case and the nature of what they were looking for. But we would do things as crime scene investigation, taking you know, another look at the crime scene. Maybe they had missed something on that. We did offender traits and characteristics, more commonly known as a profile. So they didn't have a suspect, but what might the suspect look like, think like, be? Uh, so we'd give them those characteristics. We did link analysis. So let's say there are four or five homicides in an area. Were these linked by the, was it the same person who did that? Was it copycat? Were they totally separate? We did all sorts of things like that. So it sounds like it's really not that, you know, when, when people like me think of serial killers, you think, oh, well, it was, it was pretty obvious at the outset. But if you've got someone who's like a, a cross-country truck driver and they're dumping bodies from, you know, east coast to west coast, north and south, that's got to be, that, that link analysis, that can be pretty challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And then that you bring up the cross-country truck drivers because... 
that was a lot of the uh, cases that we worked on at that time were cross-country. And because, unfortunately, law enforcement did not speak to each other uh, across jurisdictional lines that often, that could go undetected for a long time. There are forms that uh, law enforcement was supposed to fill out, but they weren't mandatory and they were lengthy, so that's why it didn't always get accomplished. But those forms would then be entered into a computer database, and looking at the way the crime was committed, that would make it much easier you know, to say somebody in Illinois is talking to somebody in New Mexico, and they've got very similar crime scenes. But since that didn't take place all the time, there were some gaps. How prevalent is that, Jenna? Because my wife watches all these shows, and uh, we read her first say, hey, she's a truck driver. Well, number one, it's a he. Not a lot of women are serial killers, as I understand yeah. it. Because you're right. I mean, the murder could have taken, the actual murder itself might have taken place in Illinois, but they're not dumping the body until they get to New Mexico. So from a criminal's perspective, that's that's a pretty good umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at them, if you don't know who you're looking for, I mean, there would be some kind of forensics, you know, hair, fibers, whatever, in the truck, but you have to have a suspect first. So I, I couldn't attach a percentage to it, but the a lot of the successful ones were cross-country truck drivers. And it was either because of good police recording uh, data entries on this or sloppiness on their part that they would be apprehended. How much of a difference, given the, the time frame that you were at the FBI, how much of a difference... I think I already know the answer to this, but, but DNA, that had to have been a, a huge step forward. Oh, huge, huge. It, it made a world of difference. And I was fortunate enough to be when they were coming out with DNA evidence, and we had some cases where they had preserved the evidence very well. So we got to see some of those come to fruition on that and solved because of the DNA. So, yeah, it made a huge difference. There's, as I understand, a huge backlog of, of DNA testing that needs to be done. If you really had to do it, Federal Express style, how long does getting results on DNA, if, if, assuming the sample is still good? Well, okay, so it really depends. That would be depending on, you know, who it is, who you know, those those kinds of things, because you're right, it could take over a year or two on some of these, there's some backlog, but if you have all the right set of circumstances, and let's just say know the right people want to do it, you could probably get it back within, you know, a couple of days or a week. Oh, that would be helpful. Yeah, very much so. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today, Jana Monroe, has said that BSU's job is to search for reason amidst the debris of awful violence. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Here's your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite platform. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Silencer Central studios. Begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will then work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs, complete all the paperwork, and then ship it directly to your front door. It's Silencer Central that makes silence simple. We're back with Jana Monroe, who had a 22-year career in the FBI. How many years were you with BSU, Jenna? Uh, five and a half years with the BSU. I mentioned the quote before we took the break about, you know, you're, you're searching for reason amidst the debris of awful violence. We all recognize there's evil in the world, but most of us, thankfully, don't 
cross paths with it, certainly on not such an extreme basis. But I just can't imagine, I mean, what does that do to your soul, to your spirit, to be dipped in that evil goo on a daily basis? I like that evil goo. I'm going to plagiarize that. Well, it really, no, I'll just say for me, it took a toll. And I think that's because, I mean, I'm looking at the victims all the time, these these people that have been brutalized. And our job in uh, conducting interviews with imprisoned serial killers was an effort or an attempt to find out the why. Uh, to your point, thank goodness most of us don't understand the why. I mean, I started to accept, or I, I did accept, that it happened, right, and they could do these things. And I would try to, and I always left my my uh, ego at the door and my judgment at the door when I was interviewing because I wanted to hear what you know, the serial killers had to say as to their own introspection as to why they did what they did. And then I never felt we got a good answer. It was like something that they'd read or something that a psychiatrist or psychologist had told them to say. It never seemed like they knew why they would do something that horrific. And they all knew it was wrong. It wasn't a, like, gee, I didn't know we should, you know, do these sorts of things. It was just, they would minimize and marginalize it. I've heard you say that when you talk about field craft, and this never crossed my mind because all I know is what I see on TV and movies, and we know how accurate that can be. But when the FBI goes in there and then the bad guy is actually caught and, you know, behind bars, the FBI themselves, you don't have anything to trade. I'm guessing you can't say, well, we'll get you a reduced sentence or, you know, better chow or something like that. So, so how do you get around that? I mean, you can't assume that every word out of their mouth is going to be a lie. No, you, you cannot. And, and you're right. There's nothing to You can't offer a stay of execution or better food. Like they, they tend to show that in, in movies. And no, we had none of that. We appealed to their egos that they would have. And, and when I say that way, it'd be one of two things. Like, you were really successful at what you did, and we don't know how you did that. So we'd like to learn from you. We'd like to learn from the best. If you could kind of lay this out for us, how, how did this take place? Some, it actually worked with saying, I'm sure you don't want others to follow in your footsteps. So what is it we, law enforcement, how can you help us to prevent other people from doing this? Or could you tell us what kind of signs we should look for in other people just to get their perspective on it? Did they pitch to their evil work in proportion to how many murders they had committed? Were they considered themselves a, a major league murderer versus a onesie, twosie? Well, I guess they have to kill at least three to be a serial killer. Right. And, and that's interesting you say that because a few did. They were proud of the numbers and would make uh, reference to somebody else. Well, yeah, he didn't do it. He got caught early or, you know, he only killed like three or four or somebody who was a mass murderer or, or spree, which is different than serial. Well, he just went and, you know, did a lot of people all at once. That's a lot easier than what I did. Yeah, it was it was amazing to me when we first started to do that because I thought, well, I, I bet you we're going to do 50-50. Some are just going to tell us to, you know, no thanks, uh, go pound sound or whatever. Um, but the majority of them would speak to us, and they gave us pretty detailed information. What If you could narrow it down, what would be the most disturbing thing that, that you witnessed or that just really maybe sent a chill up your spine as you're talking to one of these offenders? Oh, there are a lot of things. Um Okay, I had several chills, but one of them I, I remember the most is as he was describing in great detail what he did, just kind of deadpan eyes, you know, but as he was describing what he'd done, his eyes lit up, and you could see that he was reliving it and that he was enjoying it, and that literally would make your skin crawl. 
Now, you also, because you were the only woman at, in BSU at the time, you also got some extra special duty, including coaching Jodie Foster, who, as most folks recognize, won the Academy Award as uh, playing Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. What was that like? It was a really positive experience for me in that I consider her very professional, and she, of course, knew her, her lines and the rule, and, and our interaction with me speaking with her about, she would say, well, would you and would an agent really say something like this, or they say it a little differently, and I'd say yes or no. Of course, I had no influence over anybody, but she did. So if there were some words that needed to be changed or sentences or how something was done, she was able to, to make that happen. But yeah, she was very professional and knew a lot about uh, the FBI already. So it made it much easier. Well, one of the things I love from your book is she was going to have her stunt double. There, there's a scene, and I haven't seen the movie in ages, but I guess there's a scene where she's at the academy going through the the obstacle course, and at first she was going to have a stunt double do it, but you talked her into doing it herself, and she actually did. Right, yeah, I had to give her a lot of credit. Well, I said, um, yeah, why, why don't you do it? I said, she's a little younger than I am. I said, you're, you're younger than I am, and you're in good shape. Why don't you do it? I said, why not make the movie as genuine as, as possible? And um, our uh, physical training instructor, she, she went to him, and uh, he got her, got her through it, and she did a great job. Folks will have to read the book, and I'm not going to mention any names, but you did interact with some other actors who were not quite as professional, but we'll we'll leave it at that. Janet, give me a chance right now to practice my, my profiler chops, if you don't mind. Okay. There's a line you used in the book where you wrote homework. We had to do our homework for sure that when we sat down to play our instruments, we weren't sight-reading sheet music. Were you ever in a band or seeing a choir? Um, they pay me not to sing in a choir, so that that would be a no. Um, I had played guitar for a while, but I was not in a band. So. Okay. Well, I did it, it struck me that was a very specific thing that somebody who could not read music would not say. Yeah, but I, I, I to me, that was always something I just imagined. How can you do that while you're on playing? So it just seems like a good analogy. Okay. So that's a big fail for Ben. I'll, I'll stick to it. Sorry, sorry about that. No worries. Um, just a couple of minutes before the, the next break, I want to talk also about just the power, because we all see this, but we don't really, at least I don't think about that much, the value to you and your comrades of TV shows like America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. That's actually very, that works. Oh, yeah. I tell you, when I was uh, in the Tampa division, the show came on, America's Most Wanted came on on Sundays, and we would watch it avidly because it was like, well, we're going to get uh, a lead here on Monday. And um, it really had some great leads because you look at all the sets of eyes that people had on that. And uh, it was, you know, that's before Amber Alerts, but it was it was very effective. What do you recall any, any particular case that jumped to mind that just a really, I mean, America's Most Wanted tip closed the deal? Yeah, I can't think of the, the guy's name, but yeah, it was um, a murderer who had, he murdered his wife and uh, put her in a, he uh, dissected her and put her in a drum and uh, fled the area and he was in Tampa and we got a lead, uh, somebody had just seen him and we made the arrest that morning. Wow. Now, BSU also, uh, you you would consult with international agencies as well. It wasn't just domestically. That's how good your reputation was. Yeah, and it was great, too. We uh, developed the exchange. It was like an exchange program. How, however, we none of us were ever went over other places except for like a week or so to work on something. But it was for 11 months, and we had officers. They, there were certain criteria for the selection, but they would come over and study 
with us for uh, 11 months, and we would teach them um, all the craft that, that we had. Yeah. I tell you, one thing I took from your book, Jana, is you know, public outcry and public engagement can make a difference. You know, it's not like TV where you know the evidence comes back in, in 15 seconds and you know the, the case is solved in two hours. We really need the people to keep watching these programs and keep getting engaged. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the only frustrating about watching the TV shows. I was like, wouldn't that be nice if we got everything back in a timely fashion? But, yes, having the public engaged because when you, like I said, you have to devise everywhere and somebody's on the lookout for something, it's really a good lean value. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with FBI agent Jana Monroe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're very pleased to be joined by Jana Monroe. Jana had a 22-year career in the FBI, some of it with the BSU. You might consider that like the Criminal Minds or some of those other shows you see on TV. Jana actually was doing it. She was the first woman to be accepted into that rather elite group. Jana, so 850 cases in five years. I don't do math in public, but that's a ton. But you never, or many times, never actually got to see the results of your legwork and analysis, did you? I mean, you you actually weren't cuffing up the bad guy and frog marching him off to jail. No, not at all. And in fact, that was part of the frustration is that we were called in to do a certain piece of the case. Again, like an offender profiler traits and characteristics, maybe interview techniques. So we would just see a certain part of the case. And unfortunately, we didn't have a tracking mechanism, meaning that if the case was solved, there was a mandated report or something where they would let us know. And the only reason we found out about some of them was just the graciousness of the officers that would communicate back to us and say, hey, we solved this, you were correct, or we solved it without you, you were incorrect. But no, we just had a short, small window into the case. One of the things that really shocked me, Jenna, I didn't realize it was so bad, and I can't remember the number you cited, but the number of unsolved murder cases that are have stacked up out there is there's some kind of ridiculous number, like one for every 2,000 U.S. citizens or something like that. I mean, that's huge. It, it is huge. And, um, yeah, I think you can get a wrong impression from that as maybe law enforcement's inept. In my opinion and my experience, that is not it. But it's almost overwhelming, the numbers, and you only have a finite amount of officers and you can dedicate so much time to it, then there's the next one and there's something else. So officers are given just a, a certain amount of time to work on that before, like I said, I used to turn cold, before it goes cold, and then no one's actively working on it. Are serial killers in particular, do they tend to have a higher IQ than your average snatch-and-grab convenience store guy? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and I used to say that when we catch uh, bank robbers and some of the Seven Eleven robbers and said, don't pat yourself on the back. Their, their IQ is about my shoe size. But yes, and some of the premeditation and calculation that goes into it, and Ted Bundy is probably one of the most prolific. And the first one that I had encountered, he selected the burial ground before he selected his victim. 
And did he have a, a profile of what type of victim? Or was it tend to be more yeah. opportunity? No, he had a specific, and he turned it worthy. They had to be a worthy victim, meaning not a prostitute, not somebody that would be easily picked up. They had to be good-looking. Uh, he Better if they had, like, a job or a career. With the real young ones, didn't have a career yet, but if they were going to college, I mean, it had to be very pretty. So he looked at that as a worthy victim, that not everybody would be able to keep them off guard and attract them. In the book, Jenna, you referenced something called a behavioral sequence analysis of serial killer lives, a database of 233 serial killers, all male. And some of the numbers I'm going to cite for listeners here stated that 50% of serial killers claim some kind of psychological abuse as children. More than one-third experience physical abuse and 25% or more experience sexual abuse. Now, again, I don't, you know, you're getting this information from the bad guys, so I guess you could look at it with a bit of a jaundiced eye, but are we any closer to actually being able to forecast or identify someone who will become a killer? I don't think so. I, I wish I could deliver a better answer. I don't think so because... It gets, it's kind of a slippery slope if you look at some of the characteristics, right? And we used to call it the triad. It's anuresis, which is bedwetting, fire setting, and cruelty to animals. Those are indicators, but that doesn't mean that people, there are people who do that as younger people, as children, and do not become serial killers. So, you know, I, don't, I really don't think we are uh, any closer to, to predicting. When Laura and I watch these criminal shows and these cop shows, the reality ones, it, it's very unusual when someone doesn't say, oh, but he was such a nice guy. Tell us really quickly about John List. I'd never heard this guy's name before. Jonathan List, yes, and he killed his entire family and was uh, a deacon in the church. And yes, yeah, so you, you comment that people were just shocked that he's a good man, he provides for his family, he's an accountant, all, all the things that people see outwardly, they were surprised because nobody saw any signs, no indication, no nothing by the way he looked. Nothing by the way that he conducted himself. And, yeah, he he lost his job and went home and, and killed his family. He thought it, would, it was, as he said later, it was easier to do that than let him know that he lost his job and they didn't know where he was going to make a living. And he was very methodical, and he got away with it for years. I mean, he moved away, started a whole new life, and it wasn't until one of those tip situations happened that, that otherwise he wouldn't have been caught. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It was another one of the tips, and they had done a head bust of him to what he would look like, you know, computer-generated, what he might look like at this age, and it was very accurate, and somebody reported him. But you're right. He started a whole new family, and in my opinion, they were lucky he was apprehended because something went wrong there. He would uh, kill his family again. Jenna, I have a lot of law enforcement and military, obviously, on this show, and, and I know it's a challenge because very often your type A personalities and, and folks you know, they think, well, I don't need help. But again, being exposed to this, I, someone cited a figure to me once that the average civilian experiences four or five truly traumatic events in their lifetime. Your average law enforcement officer experiences maybe 700 traumatic events over the course of a 20-year career. Talk a little bit about the importance, as you moved up in leadership in the FBI, the importance of encouraging these folks who are exposed to these evils to, to get help. And in your book, you specifically cited the, the Columbine Massacre. Yeah, the Columbine massacre in Colorado, absolutely. Um, the FBI SWAT team augmented Jefferson County, who were the, that was the jurisdiction for them. But as everybody will recall, that was, you know, a horrific scene. And uh, some of our FBI agents 
children had gone there. Nobody had gotten killed. One did get shot. But all of the SWAT agents uh, saw this. And so most of them, and it just kind of goes with the culture, did not want to go uh, previously see a psychologist or we had EAP, Employee Assistance Program. But So what I did was hire some psychologists, not within the FBI, external psychologists, had the Bureau pay for it and offered counseling for all of them. And everybody but one went, and some went for a couple of months. And the whole premise is that if your mind isn't right, if you're not healthy mentally, it doesn't matter how well you are physically. You're not able to, to perform properly. Chad, we've got just about three minutes left. I've got way too many questions. But uh, just real quickly, one of the things that just scares the heck out of me is artificial intelligence and cyber crimes. You were involved early on in, in that division in the FBI. Is that uh, AI good thing, AI bad thing? Too early to tell. I think it can be both. I, I look at it like fire and water. If you burn down your house, it's not good. If you need to keep warm, it's great. AI scares me also, and I just came back from a, a lecture on that a few days ago. And for good purposes, I think AI in the right hands is going to be a game changer for some things that we do. But in the wrong hands, just the, the opposite, the antithesis of that. And laws are always, and law enforcement are always behind schemes and scams because that's just how human, the human mind works. But I think we're going to see some evil on that before laws and law enforcement catches up on it. Jana, any tips for a young person out there who might be hearing this, who might be looking to get into that type of a career, other well, other than, you know, don't wear hoop earrings when you're kicking in a door? <laughs> yes, don't wear hoop earrings. I still think law enforcement is an excellent career. I'm saddened by the fact that there is not as much support, uh, public support for law enforcement as there used to be. But I think it's it's a very rewarding career, and especially if it's a calling. I think getting that kind of experience, and I still think the FBI is, a, I don't want to get into what some of the things are with the FBI now, but I still think it's an excellent organization and a, and a good career. Janet, uh, tell us real quick, you're still involved in the game, if you will, J.D. Monroe Enterprises. What kind of consulting do you provide? And if folks are hearing this out there, what kind of people might be able to use your, your expertise? Okay, well, I do a lot of public speaking, um, predominantly on women in leadership, but it's not limited to that. I do do it on serial killers, not that that has anything to do with women in leadership, but um, people are interested in that. And I do consult on, I'm having an engagement right now where I'm consulting on cyber and just what you're talking about, AI and what some of the ramifications might be and how to set up a cyber program in, in a company. Jen, I encourage people to read Hearts of Darkness. I assume they can find it on Amazon or in, in you know, their local bookstore. Yes, it's on Amazon.com and in some bookstores, yes. And I tell you, just to pull me back up out of the evil goo, um, I just want to wrap up with a main quote I took from your book, and you said that all the evil I have seen has helped me recognize the goodness of the many, and you still stand by that. I definitely stand by that, yes. Outstanding. Jana Monroe, thank you for spending time with us and our listeners today. Hopefully, I'll uh, maybe get down to a book festival sometime and get to meet you in person. Oh, that'd be wonderful. It'd be my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.